episode 12 of The Complete Shostovsky Shlowski. I'm uh, Matt Gasteyer, and I'm here with uh, my co-host, Travis Trudell. How are you, Travis? You're done with production. Does it feel good? Oh, it is this giant weight off my shoulders. I'm so happy to be able to spend all of my time, well, besides all the time at the house, uh, just uh, focusing on film. So I'm super excited to just be done. It's uh, great. Must be a nice feeling. Um, And uh, speaking of nice feelings, it's a delightful feeling to have on our friend from, uh, I think it's 2020 there now, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's all the way across the globe, uh, Tim Lego. Uh, how Hello. you doing, Tim? Very good. It's good to finally talk to you, Matthew. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Um, we've uh, been speaking online for years and years. Um, you uh, took over the uh, Criterion Considered Facebook group that I used to run, uh, and you've been doing a swell job of it although i have no idea now because i'm not on facebook (laughs) at the moment but i trust that you're doing a still doing a swell job of it um and uh and you you also um are somebody who i think is one of the most knowledgeable people about uh these boutique labels that we love and home video in general and uh, i always enjoy your letterboxd reviews as well so it's a it's a pleasure to have you on thank you and it's you, a pleasure to be here. You're, are you uh, kidding? This is the first time you guys are talking together? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've never... Um, I mean, the, you know, I think... Have you been on any podcasts other, other than now, Tim? Uh, well, it's on now with Travis. That's oh, right. Yeah. I've got one up on you, Matt. One up. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, no. We we have never uh, encountered each other in the in the voice. So maybe someday I'll I'll get to travel over to Australia and shake your hand. Or vice versa. <laughs> I'll be traveling into the future. Don't tell me who, who wins the presidential election next year. I want to be surprised. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are here uh, to talk about um, Decalogue 7 and 8. After our uh, weird detour into expanded episodes, we are now uh, talking exclusively about uh, self-contained um episodes that uh were not expanded um and it's funny tim i didn't uh, pick any particular episodes to have you on for but um you you have in unfortunately encountered the two that i feel like have the most kind of mixed opinion out there there's a lot of um sort of criticism regarding both of these episodes that i'm sure we'll get into but um these are these are I feel like of uh, certainly of the the ones that we've covered so far the ones that that m- many critics have the most negative things to say about in terms of not quite living up to the other um, the other episodes but um, we'll get into that um, the first thing we do uh, here is uh, ask our new guest what they think of Kishlovsky so if you want to say a few words about um, just how you feel about uh, his films, how you came to them, and how your opinion of them has evolved. Um, that'd be great. Oh, yeah, he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I first uh, encountered Kishlowski. I'm, I'm going to say it wrong all the way through. I'll just get that out of the way now. We'll just chalk um, it up to your Australian accent. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the, the Three Colours trilogy was uh, extremely successful in Australia. I don't know if it had the same level of success, um, mainstream success in the US as it did here. It, it was kind of everywhere for a while. Um, so I became aware of him through those films um, and through White in particular. Uh, I was a very big fan of White which um, was a bit to do with the humour of it, which I guess you'll get to soon. Um, but also uh, Julie Delpy. Uh, at that time, I was uh, a very big fan of her work, still am. Um, so from there, I, it was really hard to get um, access to his other films over here during that period. Uh, so I, I managed to get import copies of a short film about love and a short film about killing um, a couple of years later from the UK. They would have been artificial eye uh, VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously they were two superb films, um, but it really wasn't until Criterion started putting out his films um, the Double Life of Veronique um, and then Three Colours and Blind Chance uh, and eventually Decalogue that I really got to see um, the rest of his work and obviously I've been incredibly impressed. Um, the Arrow box set uh, was a revelation to me. So that was the first way I saw the Decalogue was through the Arrow set. Um, going disc by disc, so I'd be watching the TV films almost as a break between each two episodes because mm-hmm. um, of the way that box was structured, which right. I think was a really good way to do it. Um, yeah, so that's my experience. I've now seen the Decalogue three times, I think, and I've seen these episodes a couple times more, um, and I can't wait to talk about them. Yeah, you you were uh, the only person I knew who had seen Personnel <laughs> before we we watched it, uh, and so yeah, um, that that is a really great box, and um, I I hope those films come back into print at some point. Yeah, it's a real shame. Um, so uh, unlike uh, the previous episodes, we will be going through these. Uh, sequentially rather than kind of comparing and contrasting them. Although I think there are a number of, uh, elements here that, uh, uh, these two episodes have in common. Um, I think probably more so than any of the previous pairings that we've done. Uh, these two pieces, uh, go together a lot and tie into some of the other, uh, episodes in pretty interesting ways. Um, so, uh, We'll start with um, episode seven, which is um, according to uh, the the commandment connection. It's the "Thou shalt not steal" uh, episode. Uh, it's about a, a a woman, young woman, who wants to um, take her sister, her little sister, and leave for Canada. And, of course, it turns out that her little sister is not her little sister at all, but uh, is her actu- is actually her daughter. Uh, and she had an affair with a teacher, 
um, if you want to call it an affair, uh, <laughs> um, when she was 16 and had a baby and, and her mother, who was the principal of the school, um, passed it off as her daughter and has been raising her uh, in that way ever since. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of a, um, uh, an on the run story in the second half, um, a kidnapping. Um, but, uh, even that characterization of it brings up a lot of, uh, issues surrounding the, uh, the central commandment. Um, so Tim, what, what do you think of this episode? Well, the, the thing that, that struck me first, um, as a surprise really, uh, is that it starts with the heist. So the way that, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just going to say Kishlowski, the way, um, it's filmed at the opening of the scene, you've got all of the preparation for the um the the robbery that's about to happen um she's going through trying to get the visa um she's breaking away from her past by uh returning her records with the um pages removed um and then she stakes out her victim <laughs> i guess yeah um she watches her through um the playground from behind the tree and then she maps out her path to um, the the actual burglary um, when she goes backstage at where the concert is um, and throws the ball down the stairs to distract the guard right. <laughs> and then goes up the stairs. And then she's mapped out that um, Anya will come onto the stage at some point, as all the kids do, and that she'll be there to steal her away. Um, that whole setup is so unlike um, your normal heist movie, but the structure is exactly the same. Mm. I, I found that really quite fascinating. Yeah, that is. Uh, you don't expect a uh, a heist movie from uh, Kishlowski, but he does go through the the beats that uh, of a standard heist movie. It is. Uh, you see the preparation and the uh, the enacting of the plan. The only thing you're missing is like the scene where she stands over a table and folding a map of everything <laughs> that she's gonna do <laughs> with little little characters. But uh, no, that's a uh, yeah. I uh, watching her go through those steps because. Um, I think uh, it's uh, you have that you have the child screaming at the beginning, which is also yeah. kind of unsettling. You don't know what's going on. You just hear this crying, and then you're going through all these people, and you still hear this crying, and you're wondering, like, because you're visiting the fo- uh, the old man in the workshop. You're you're seeing uh, uh, Micah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Micah outside doing stuff. You see, uh, and then the child screaming, and you don't know kind of like where this screaming is coming from until, uh, is it Eva or no, Anya? Who's, Anya. The, who's yeah. the mom? Oh, Eva. Eva is the mom. Eva. Yeah, yeah. She comes in and finally calms her down. With there's no, was it? There's no wolves. Is that the? Uh, yeah, she has a recurring dream about wolves. About wolves, right? Which is very fairy taleish. Uh, that that um bit starts Micah is in there trying to calm her down and she's continuing to scream and then Ava comes in and pushes Micah away tells her to go away to get out um and says something along the lines of you can never calm her down right and then Micah goes to her father 
to for him to calm her down um yeah over the uh the encounter and then ava shakes the baby well not the baby shakes the child as seems to be the way to calm children down in this movie <laughs> is to shake them as hard as he can yeah yeah th- those are different times throw some <laughs> throw some cold water on her <laughs> um yeah i mean the 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 heist structure almost continues in a way through the rest of the film um you know the the hurried phone call at the payphone um you know it's uh, it's it becomes like a like a cat and mouse game you know she's hiding under the bridge um it it's it there's definitely an aspect to this uh episode that feels uh like a like a genre movie um a little bit like i think um episode three uh where they're kind of you know it's the one crazy night uh structure um there's there's this kind of dual parallel uh stories being told one is is of action and what these characters are actually doing and how they're interacting and then the other is is of the emotional arc of the movie which um even though micah is clearly the um protagonist of the episode it i think a lot of what's um transpiring here is anya's experience moving from being this you know having this real sense of the grandmother being her mother uh to uh the deep conflict of the final scene uh, of the episode um it feels like her arc is more of the emotional center of the film than anything that micah is going through do you guys agree with that i think uh i think i think eva's arc is is important but i think it's weird it's 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 uh it coins it runs tangentially to Micah's arc as well because yeah. she realizes that she cannot just be something because she is in name that thing that it takes more than just being someone's mother to be a mother kind of like that arc that she has that her ideas of revenge is not the best way to go about like getting love i guess is 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 what she's going for whether it's the love of her mother or the love of her daughter she kind of is confused on what she's what her goal is uh at the same time uh eva's also kind of going through the arc of the fact that she's lost two daughters now like her, her you know her right. older daughter is something that she you know and so she's also realizing that uh you know that it's hard to it's you know experiencing loss at that level is is something hard to hard to kind of face as well and you know she does it in that gruff manner of you know i need to get my daughter back because she's the only thing that matters at the same time realizing she's losing her daughter you know uh in the process so it's a it's it's weird it's this uh it's this kind of like dueling arc that they both have this uh coming to an understanding at the same time which is uh is 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 pretty powerful i i this is the first film in the series where it's a mother daughter uh situation mm-hmm. everything else so far has been a like a uh you know lovers or mother or excuse me father son uh there hasn't really been a mother daughter kind of thing and uh so it was kind of it was a nice change of pace and uh 
besides the undercurrent dread of oh my god something horrible is going to happen to the little girl because this is a uh, we've already witnessed a, a boy dying in the very first episode so we now know that uh, Kieszowski is uh, willing to kill a child to tell a story um, <laughs> I keep on waiting for something bad to happen to Anya and uh, so there's this layer of dread going through this while all this other stuff is happening so it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty tense movie even though there are some light parts uh especially when they get to the magical forest of the uh of the teddy bear factory yeah there's there's a lot of ambiguity even in the kidnapping um you know it's not clear to me anyway whether micah is is kidnapping anya truly because she wants to take her and be her mom and you know have that connection or if it's as revenge for Ava stealing her in the first place and she's getting back at her by stealing her and going somewhere else um you know there's there's other ways to tell uh the the girl that she's her mom that um don't involve stealing her away from her family um so it did and you know it, along those same lines uh, when uh is it is it wojek um yeah the, uh yeah wojek um he says you know you uh you would you be willing to steal or kill it's like wait nobody's talking about kill here where did that come from <laughs> um there is this like deep set hatred obviously between um my, Micah and Ava and so there it does become kind of this question of like what what exactly are her motives for pulling off this heist in the first place and Micah flat out says it she says um that um I've hated her for a long yeah, time yeah um and that she said that um that her mother went crazy she nearly fell down the steps and laughs <laughs> Yeah, uh, and when she goes to call her mother, she tells Wojciech uh, that she's going to badger mum. Mm. So she's she's trying to she's doing the whole thing to upset her mother. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean you wouldn't even you it's, wouldn't make that phone call unless you're doing it just to to uh, to hurt someone. You know, if you wanted just to have a relationship with your daughter and be the mother, and the only way to do that is to remove her from her, you know her grandmother, you know, so she could be, you know, it's weird because <clears throat> as someone, I don't know if you guys have run into this, when I had issues when I had my ch first child with my mom constantly trying to tell me how to raise my right. child because she was a mom, so she knows, and obviously I don't, but our methodology and uh, I ideology of how to do it are completely different. And so there is that sense of you can't really be a parent until you are left alone to be a parent. So there is that concept that, uh, you know, Micah is making that effort to separate to be, but she wouldn't taunt her mom if, uh, if it was, if her ambitions were noble, you know what I mean? There's two directions I want to go here, but, uh, um, I'll, I'll stick with the, uh, with the mom, um, but bring in uh, Vocek because obviously, um, you know, he was the catalyst for this uh, mother-daughter uh, feud, if you will. 
um, he uh, raped, uh, legally legally raped a 16-year-old, uh, got her pregnant, ruined her life, um, and uh, it seems like from the conversations that he has with the mom that he was having an affair with her at the time. Do you guys agree? Tim, do you agree with that characterization or do you think it's kind of left ambiguous what their, what the, the past was between Ava and him? Um, or do you think it, that's, that's what the, what Kieślowski is, is sort of getting at with their interactions. That, that was certainly the impression I got. Um, particularly the, uh, Ava says to Micah at a, uh, another point, um, it was something along the lines of, um, I will tell you things once I've retired. Yeah. Um, referring to him. So I, there was obviously something, um, going on between them. Um, yeah. I, one of the, the things around that is there's a jealousy in all the relationships here. Every relationship in this film, you can see a jealousy. Um, and people like uh, uh, Ava is jealous of the relationship between Micah and her father. Um, yeah. Micah's jealous of the relationship between Ava and Anya. Um, and then Micah becomes jealous of the relationship between Wojciech and Anya when they begin to bond. Yeah, and then uh, Ava's jealous also of... Uh, you can feel that jealousy also of uh, between uh, Wojciech and Micah that Ava felt, you know, in the past probably, knowing that... Uh, yeah. You know, that feeling that she... You know, because there's also that sense that... Or she says explicitly, you know... Uh, Eva says that uh, she couldn't have any more children. And so that concept that, you know, uh, I can't have any more children. Something's been taken away from me. And then there, here comes a check who she probably has an affair with, uh, hoping that maybe that, you know, maybe that could also provide her children, which echoes some of, uh, episode two's, uh, uh, themes, but then, you know, that doesn't happen, but then her daughter is, you know, instantly pregnant from the uh, the illicit uh, sexual affair that they had, and makes you know just muddies up those waters and causes so much more stress and tension in all their relationships because of it. So I guess if you were yeah. to yeah, I mean conceivably she she wanted to have children with Wojciech and was unable to or you know i mean she was still married at the time um so it yeah it does tie back again that it it it's these multiple strands of of jealousy like tim's talking about um well i mean obviously micah was a minor at the time but it does seem like micah takes i guess responsibility for the relationship when she's discussing it saying you know you were the, um, my mother was the principal, you were the cool English student. Right. Uh, you were the cool Polish teacher. With different, um, where the, whose classes were different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but obviously she brought her mother into that part of the conversation. So it was just like, I'm going to do this to get back at my mother. But mm. 
yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it's definitely, um, common for teenagers who are in statutory rape situations to think that they were the kind of pursuer. Um, there is at the same time, this feeling that like he really wanted to have the child and continue the relationship. Um, but then she, Ava characterizes it to her daughter in a different way that, uh, you know, when the child is born that it, he, she's telling her that he basically didn't want any part in it. Um, you know, and she, he dismisses that saying that that's not the case. He, she, she lied a little bit, uh, essentially, <laughs> which kind of gets into like the bearing false witness that, that is directly addressed in, in the next episode. Um, so again, there is this sort of ambiguity in terms of what he wanted from the situation. And now he's doing this totally other job in this other place. His father died. And so he's just kind of, uh, you know, he feels like he had a missed opportunity. Um, and of course he, he dodged a, a scandal, um, in the situation, but, uh, there's just as much regret from his perspective as there is from any of the other characters in the episode. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he, the fact that, uh, you know, he probably wanted to be a father. He probably wanted to be a part of that life, but he wasn't allowed to because of the scandal. I mean, the fact that he now makes toys for children out in yeah. the woods, you know, <laughs> at an, at, at an old, uh, amusement park kind of, you know, signifies, uh, that that is something he definitely wanted to be a part of and there he is still doing it and he finally gets to give his daughter a, a teddy bear that he probably always wanted to when she was born this episode uh really feels like a bergman movie to me mm-hmm. um you know i think even, even micah, the look of micah yeah she kind of looks like a awkward live Ullman. i think mm-hmm. um yep and uh and i, I mean uh, in particular uh autumn sonata comes to mind you know it's this isn't as as sort of brutally punishing as that movie uh you know autumn sonata in that sense is maybe closer to um the first episode but the mother-daughter the complexity of the mother-daughter relationship um the the extremely cold mother um with you know with a daughter who is dealing with um uh, uh, varying degrees of trauma from their past, um, and sort of the inability to connect, um, and the ineffectual male characters here. Um, you know, even though Vocek eventually sort of takes matters into his own hands and the, uh, the, the, the mom ends up finding the daughters, um, they, they sort of sit around waiting for the female characters to do things, um, in this episode and it feels a little bit uh similar to to a lot of bergman films in that sense as well um i i i sense from from your uh from everybody's uh hums that that you guys felt the same way watching this oh yeah yeah no it felt as as soon as uh as soon as i the first saw micah i was like wow why does she look so familiar and i had to like 
after the show after the episode was over i you know had to quickly go online to see like what other movies i seen her in and she's really not in a lot of movies and then i realized that yeah she does have a uh a uncanny resemblance to uh live ullman you know uh and then it started kind of piecing together it did feel uh bergman-esque in the way that uh it's set up the way the characters were built, the relationship dynamic. I'm thinking of, I want to say, one of Bergman's early, early films. The one where uh, the daughter goes to live with her real mom in the city. Um, yeah. It's going to, the name's going to escape, uh, the name will escape me, but uh, it had a lot of that feel. You know, uh, the daughters were the wrong age, but she had that. Uh, naivete of uh, I can raise my daughter out on my own and go out in the big world and do my own thing and then kind of realize that this isn't going to work she she doesn't have the skills to kind of keep this uh keep this up and uh you know it's time to kind of pack it in and you know the fact that she takes she accepts help from a stranger which is becomes her undoing even though the stranger is uh lying for her when she uh when she ends up at the train station with uh Anya and they go and take they go to sleep inside the uh the ticket taker's uh, office and the ticket taker's like no I haven't seen anyone and then she just pokes her head up and goes hey mama <laughs> which is uh which is pretty amusing you know the best laid plans um but uh it's also interesting that they the, this film ends uh at a train station um with uh you know usually most of the train stations in the films are the point of departure for characters to kind of go out on their own or try new things or take new paths um and a lot of times train stations in films are reunions where someone finally arrives and comes back and they're waiting on the platform and everyone gets back together and in this movie, it's, you know, it's both the new path and new direction and a uh, farewell, um, which reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, his obsession, uh, Kishlowski's obsession with trains, uh, tram cars and stuff like that in all of his other films. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Blind Chance, which that's, uh, isn't Wojciech, isn't yeah. he? The, he's the yep. main character in Blind Chance, right? Yeah, yeah. And he he's a... He was an extremely uh, successful actor in Poland. Um, even by this point, he'd been in a number of things, but he became possibly the biggest actor in Poland in the 90s. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I definitely got that that sense from the train situation. And even the witness, um, who you can only see slightly in this uh was was originally intended to be at the train station getting off of the the train um the footage that Kieślowski shot of him uh he decided was not usable so he wasn't included here but i think the fact that he was intended to be in that moment um is a is a good indication of sort of the the importance of that situation and 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 just that you know that she her her decision in that moment is to run away and just kind of cut her losses, sever the tie with her her daughter. Um, says a lot about her character. Um, and this ending, you know, I was think I I thought at the end of it after um, after episode one, it was it just kind of walks up and stabs you in the heart. Um, this one is kind of like the shiv in the side as you're uh, 
you know, waiting in line for something. Um, like it, it's just, it sneaks up on you. And, and that, the, that final, um, shot of Anya kind of watching her newly discovered mother go away to me is, is the darkest future for any character that we've encountered at, uh, up to this point. It's just, <clears throat> you know, her, her world has been upended uh, twice within the course of this hour. And, um, you know, it, it's clear that, that she, this, this tie that she had to her, who she thought was her mother is not going to ever be the same. And she's going to have to kind of live with the consequences of what we've been watching. Yeah. It's almost as if part of the, uh, thou shall not steal, uh, uh, Micah has stolen a bit of Anya's, uh, identity, um, and, you know, security for a little bit there as well. So now she's left untethered without an idea of like, what to do, where to go, what's real, what isn't, you know, she's been introduced to a dad, a new mom, her grandmother's not her mother, you know, everything is kind of screwed up for this uh, young lady for a little while, and, uh, you know, once again leaves it up to Ava to pick up the pieces, which is what she did the first time as well, uh, when everything kind of went wrong, so it's a, it is, it's a very, con- I don't, I, I'd love to hear some of the negative responses i haven't i didn't read a lot into i stopped reading uh what people were thinking about these movies a little while ago because <laughs> i would get very frustrated um but i'd love to hear some of the negative responses about well this i mean i thought this was a really powerful one yeah i mean it ties into the the next question that i had which which is raised by by what you're talking about in terms of of the stealing not necessarily being the central um, heist, as as Tim put it, but that conceivably the commandment could be speaking to um, Ava stealing the daughter to begin with, Wojciech stealing M- Micah's youth. Uh, the you know there's there's sort of a huge n- number of kind of dynamics at play here that could conceivably be addressed by the commandment that is um, ostensibly tied to this episode. But I think one of the central complaints of the, uh, of the critics of this episode is that the, can you steal something which isn't yours? um, Central question of Micah's experience um, is, is literally spoken by her. And so I think a lot of people find the, the combination of sort of the the theme spoken out loud and the exposition, like the fact that in the middle of this episode, you've got Micah and Wojciech really just laying out all of the history of the interactions between all of these people and what's transpired. And it feels clunkier to some people than um, previous episodes have. I don't know. Did, did any of that uh, come across for you, Tim? Um, the, I mean, the thing that came across to me, um, was that everyone just seemed exhausted all the way through this film. There was, this has clearly been six years that had just drained everyone. Um, so you'd see, um, Wojciech's life had 
obviously been upended. Um, he had moved back with his dad and his dad had died and his place was, uh, let's say, not uh, somewhat unkempt. Um, and um, he had... Um, what did uh, what did he get asked was uh, what about your dreams you know your teaching your writing and he just says I gave up um, uh, the um, fa- um, I can't remember the name of um, Eva's husband but he's just says very little he just watches he's just too tired to care seemingly. Yeah, um, it was very like his his whole like is he fixing chairs or something? Yeah. It was very it was very like the definition of just like a dude that's checked out completely. Um, he he's just ex- like you said exhausted. I think more than any even any of the other characters who are wrapped up in the central conflict of the episode, he's just like, oh, just like give me some peace and quiet, and <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, and um. Ava's the the one who had some drive, but she obviously lost that when Anya was taken. And you just see her um, at, when um, when um, why am I blanking on her name? <laughs> uh, when her daughter, Micah. her actual daughter, Micah, <laughs> yeah, when Micah calls in with her first, I guess, ransom demand, um, that she's just on the bed with her hand over her head yeah the fact that no one was willing to help her when she was running around at the theater saying my daughter's missing Mm. my daughter's missing you know and then she just comes home like a zombie and just goes right to her room and uh to the dad's point i guess in the original script there was uh he was supposed to be a frustrated communist who was upset that nothing worked the way it was supposed to so he's resigned (laughs) Which is puzzle also why he's just so kind of done with everything. Like, he's just resigned to the fact that nothing worked for his party, nothing's working this way, his family's in ruins, he just kind of hangs out in his room, and I think he's, I think he's building pipe organs, or pianos or something. Oh, well, he does play an instrument. Yeah, I wasn't sure, kind of, if that, if that was connected to what he was building. But yeah, it's yeah. uh, it's a, you can yes, you're absolutely right, Tim. I think everyone is just at at their exhausted at their at their kind of wits end with the situation as it is, which I guess would lead Micah to kind of be drastic and you know that whole everyone's stuck in this rut of just being, and then you know she shakes things up with her ideas and it's not working like it, but it's something that she, you know, it's almost like I want to steal my daughter back to live a new life is she doesn't need her daughter. She just needs to go start a new life. Like everything has been ruined for her and she needs to begin again. And this idea, this, you know, magical, let's go escape to Canada where we can live our lives without, you know, the oppression of my parents, you know, that's kind of, that's that, uh, that false dream of many teenage teenagers, you know, well, if I didn't have my parents, my life would be perfect. And that's, it's that concept that, uh, you know, once you get older, you realize that you're just being dramatic and things would have been better if you could kind of get your shit together. And in, I mean, that, that change from the script, uh, for the father, 
again to me underscores just how um, effectively Kieślowski has moved um, for, away from political content to personal content in a way that, uh, you know, as you've kind of pointed out throughout the season, Travis, in a way that I think makes it more effective as political content. Oh, you know, for there, sure. There is here um, definitely a sense of, uh, of you know, being defeated. Um, and I think that comes through, you know, even just like, I mean, the way this opens with the screaming child, uh, you know, that you don't know where it's coming from. Like there's this sense of just like, this uh this hidden terror that is it's not being yeah. um uncovered yeah the wolves the wolves are the wolves are at the door and there's nothing we can do about it except for cry and be comforted by our uh, mother our mother state <laughs> <laughs> that, that seems like a a light-hearted way to end the discussion of this uh episode seven did you guys have anything else um that you wanted to touch on i, uh, the, I guess the one other thing um, is just the the way that the, this episode is shot is, um, I think, somewhat more um, naturalistic than um, yeah. the recent uh, episodes. It's uh, it's uh, yeah, it feels uh, structured. It feels simple. Like uh, there's yeah. no, you know, nothing crazy going on. Everything feels kind of down, but also. Uh, it's weird the uh, the ki- you know you would think with a kidnapping they would, the camera would feel more frantic like uh, you know in any moment they're gonna catch us but everything feels like underneath there is a calm calmness to the frame a calmness to the uh, shot order which you know helps I guess give you some stability or some feeling that things are gonna be kind of okay um, you know I don't know there's it, it feels it felt like behind it all there was uh some stability which uh which was kind of nice i think it's uh to go with the handheld running and kind of everything being frantic would have uh would have been cliched i think so having it be a little bit different um was nice was a nice change of pace well it's almost like the um you know it's almost like the woods after a storm it's there's Mm -hmm. there is this sort of undercurrent of like this environment has always been there and will always be there, whether these characters are making the decisions that they're making or not. Um, yeah. And there's nice symbolism throughout too, you know, just kind of like that, uh, abandoned, abandoned carousel in the forest. Uh, you know, just like these beautiful little childhood lost moments, uh, throughout the whole entire piece. And then Kieślowski's normal, usual, people behind glass to separate them to feel like they're at odds or at distances and his love of hands um his brissonian love of hands um you know people touching people rubbing uh you know pushing her hair uh pushing anya's hair out of her face while she's sleeping amongst the teddy bears which was also a beautiful moment her taking a nap in in a giant pile of teddy bears it's like a child, you know, child fantasy. That whole that whole scene is yeah. kind of like a Hansel and Gretel running into the forest to escape the witch. 
this magical land of teddy bears and there's a bit of a fairy tale quality to this episode as well but like with most things you know once you see the structure of the uh the bears being built the magic's kind of lost and uh Mm. that whole thing pops and you know yeah well and she and she grabs his hand as well while she's while she's sleeping that's so nice that's a nice moment too yeah um what what do you guys think of the poem that boy reads let me think do you want me to read the poem yeah i totally yes, forgot please. about it I, yeah <laughs> i remember i remember the scene but i don't remember the poem it's an italian movie mother and daughter a few scenes which i touch around me that's it he pulls out his big book, his um, manuscript, and that's what he reads from it to Anya. I wonder if that's uh, the I, man. I wonder if that's the moment where the uh, his affection went from one to the other, or he realized he liked both of them. Sitting in an Italian movie between the two of them, looking at both of them, looking at the same thing. Yeah, I mean the experience of transferring. You know of of. Uh... Of affection, yeah, yeah. What do you think, Tim? Uh, that's good. I was clueless. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's yeah. funny that I think it's funny that I I guess because of the age of Micah and of how she is, I guess that that uh, the speech that happens in the middle where she lays out her her what she thinks. And then, uh, like, uh, Wojciech uh, is then kind of, like, laying out what had actually happened to her. I guess because of the age of the character, I felt that was a natural thing. That teenage, she's built up this speech in her head that she's going to say, which is about how can I, you know, how can I steal something that is mine kind of idea. That she's probably repeated to herself over and over to build the courage to do the things she does. I guess I I didn't feel like it was clunky. I felt it just felt naturalistic, like a teenager's emotion of what you know. It's not. It's not that overly adult, uh, you know, teenager who has all of the has all the answers. But it more felt more along the lines of someone who had rehearsed something, who also is still mm-hmm. trying to impress her, a little bit her you know the person that she admired and you know she kind of had she had a crush on and wanting to kind of like you know get uh affirmation from him that what she's doing is right and also probably secretly wanting to build the new family out in the woods you know feeling him out to see if he wants to be the dad and you know do you you know are we going to live like this out here and do this kind of thing so by him kind of laying out the truths it it was it felt awkward like they were both trying to reach out to each other but they really didn't have anything chemistry except for sexual chemistry which is kind of messed up you know what i mean like it didn't feel it felt it felt good to me like it felt like a good scene like i can see why people would be kind of that this is a little more explicit in its themes by them saying them out loud. But at the same time, I mean, there's 40 other layers that are not explicitly talked about in this movie. 
And so the fact that the teenager girl is the one who's explicitly saying what she thinks doesn't phase me at all because that is totally something that, you know, a teen would do, you know, be overly dramatic yeah. in terms of what they believe and wanting to speak it out because they now have opinions about things. Well, she's not a teen anymore, right? I mean, she's 22. She like tw- yeah, she's like, I mean, but well, she's, she's clearly... She's in college, isn't she? She Is feels it? younger. Well, yeah, it's not clear. I mean, it. it she got expelled, so I'm not sure, yeah. like... You know, if she had had time off um, from school, if it had been pushed back or anything like that. I guess um, I had her at like 19 or 20, like right around that age. But the her daughter's six, right? Yeah. 16. Yeah, yeah there you go. Good 16. point. Yeah. I mean, for me, her that conversation didn't strike me as false. And I wonder if... if um, if some of this has to do with the fact that we're not watching these um, back to back in the way that some people, you know, will watch five of first five and then the next five, especially if you have to see them in theater. Um, this that conversation is so much about their past and sort of reckoning with what they were like then and what they've been doing. And that's not even though a lot of the um, episodes so far have to do with uh, things from the past kind of um, bringing to bear on uh, what's happening in each episode. It's hard for me to think of a conversation that is that kind of meaty that is exclusively about like, so what were we like and what have you been up to since then? Uh, you know what I mean? So I wonder if a little bit of, of the pushback is coming just from the feeling that this doesn't feel as um, in the moment and uh, doing rather than telling um, as the mm. previous episodes. But it's also, um, it follows on from um, obviously a short film about killing or um a short film about love. So they're probably two of the strongest of the series. Right. Um, and to follow, I guess, um, six with this story, I could see watching them back to back to back that this could certainly be a letdown. And, and it was to me the first time I saw it. I won't, um, I won't lie, but on reviewing, I'm getting more and more out of it. So as I am with every episode of the series. Yeah, that's true. I mean, six in particular is, is uh, the the episode is very sparse in terms of providing detail on these characters. Like, you kind of have to grab nuggets here and there. And this is very much all laid out for you, except for perhaps the, the previous uh, affair between Ava and Wojciech. Um, yeah. It's all laid like, out except for the juicy details. Yeah, there's there's nuggets there, but it's not... Um, but, I mean, again, there are still all these elements that feel like little details in short in a short story. You know, the, the, the poem, the the river. Like, there, there's these little moments that don't feel like they necessarily um, clearly connect to what's being 
discussed, but they have they lend more richness to the to the story that um, that they surround. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't I don't agree with uh, the criticism uh, entirely, um, but it was interesting to read, especially just because the previous episodes have fairly uniformly been been very strongly received um and these the, this and and the one that we're about to talk about felt a little bit more polarizing in terms of the responses that i read okay so episode eight um this is uh again uh, i think an episode that stands out um from the, the films that we've looked at previously, um, and even more so than, than Seven, is about the past uh, almost exclusively, um, and kind of de- reckoning with it, and even at times t- attempting to recapture it. Um, this, this episode is about uh, a woman... Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say their their English names because it's easier. This is Sophia, um, and um, she's a uh, philosophy professor who has written a number of books, um, which have been translated by Elizabeth, uh, who is a um, former uh, Polish citizen, now American, um, and. Uh, they through uh, through this visit um, to Poland, they she reveals that um, they have this um, previous history together of uh, an experience during the Holocaust, uh, where Elizabeth was um, asking to be taken in by Sophia and uh, told that um, they would not take her in to save her uh, because they were Christian and they didn't want to bear false witness by pretending that she was their child. Um, so the other thing, uh, I want to point out up front here is that, uh, there is a, um, description of episode two in the initial, uh, philosophical discussion in the class that, that Sophia is having, um, where somebody puts forth basically the moral quandary of episode two before, Elizabeth um, describes the moral quandary of this episode. Um, so even more than the other episodes where they kind of just have characters floating in and there's even um, a character here from a different episode or the witness um, who is sitting in the class here, um, this is the most kind of direct connection to a different episode in that they literally describe the the plot of one of them um tim what do you think of this episode eight uh, kind of your initial reaction to it they also foreshadow the plot of episode 10 that's right um pretty heavily in this one yeah um it's it's interesting having watched these two out of sync of the rest of the series rather than straight through um because they both involve six-year-old girls um, being removed from a parent or from their parents. And, yeah, I, I just found that connection really surprising um, and surprising I didn't notice it earlier. Um, There's also a mother-daughter connection here that mirrors that mother-daughter connection as well. Yeah, and the lecture format 
Um, the first time I saw it, I found it a bit difficult, a bit heavy-handed. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's going to be one of the criticisms yes. that um, is levelled at it. But I, I kind of see that it's character-wise, I can see why that's the way it's been introduced. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's 11 minutes of the episode is essentially retelling episode two and then telling the um, moral dilemma of this one. Right. <laughs> um, straight to camera. Um, <laughs> so it's um, it, it can feel a bit, well, like you're being lectured to. Um, but the other thing that surpri- well, I find surprising about this episode is that there's, um, for a Holocaust story, there's um, a lot of humour in and around the story, but I'm not quite sure why it's there. Nutcase. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah, and the the rubber man. Oh yeah. Yeah, the the rubber man and the um yeah, just the drunk man <laughs> wandering into and, class. Yeah. Let me let me say right now, I would totally sign up for a uh, an elective course called Ethical Hell. I think yeah. that's a fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be a fantastic course to hang out and just come up with ethical dilemmas and see how people would get out of them. Well, that that sort of uh, leads into what I think. Yeah, there there's def- that's definitely where a lot of the criticism comes from. Um, there's also the the discussion of. Um, what's basically a discussion of like, is there a God, um, later on in the episode and mm-hmm. which, which uh, people feel Sophia's essentially just a mouthpiece for Kishlovsky. And I do feel like in movies, um, anytime there is anybody who is a philosophy professor or religious professor, like they don't talk like those people actually do. They talk like artists, you know, mm-hmm. And so there is this sense of like, okay, well, this is just like a really easy device for you to talk about the issues that in other episodes you're able to explore in a more, um, well, showing not telling way. Um, and so I, I can see why people get frustrated with those moments. Um, I found them, you know, I, I found that I found them interesting and I found the dialogue to be, um, compellingly written. So I wasn't necessarily in that camp, but I think for me, what I respond to most in this episode is the, the cinematography, which is almost to me as stylized as the cinematography in short film about killing, um, Mm -hmm. You know, the, those head those head on um, perspectives of the dialogue is very unusual for this series, um, and then the the sort of journey through her old apartment building um, is so compelling, both from a kind of uh, story perspective and just like meeting these weird offbeat characters and um, diving into this world that seems so out of place from what we've experienced previously in the episode, but also just like is shot really well. And it's, um, just kind of like, it's almost like a, uh, uh, what's his name who did, it's almost like city of lost children. Like it, it Mm -hmm. feels like this fantastical place. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, like the just some of these moments, it's clear, unclear at one point when Sophia is driving Elizabeth around, like she's going through a tunnel and the way she's looking at the camera, it doesn't even seem like there. And the way the scene starts, it doesn't even seem like there's anybody else in the car except for us and her. It's this very unusual way of putting together scenes that um, really, especially at the beginning of the episode, separates the two main characters to such a degree that they are so isolated that they, uh, through the course of the film, they, their coming together is very satisfying. Yeah, this episode was very refreshing. Uh, after many episodes of like moral dilemmas or tragedy or tension just all this pent up you know with a couple episodes of violent or sexual release but everything has been so just so tense to have an episode where two people are able to communicate clear the air reconnect and be happy it was so fulfilling as a viewer to after getting through you know seven episodes of things that were really kind of tough to tough to wrestle with to have an episode where you see finally humanity being able to reconnect with each other to a degree we'll talk about the tailor in a little bit but to see that ability of two people and two women being able to reconnect with each other that's also i think an, an important thing that he's getting to in here there's a sense of forgiveness and ease in which they're able to you know realize that that these uh, these misunderstandings this miscommunication these ideas could easily be rectified with just open communication um i really i really like that and the fact that the cinematography is so engaging in terms of having us the audience stare directly into the faces of these women of uh zofia and elizabetta uh is is very powerful we've been kept isolated and at a distance for so many episodes um either we've been very cold in a way or we've been inside but it's been very violent and rough and to have just someone look at you with a smile on their face directly addressing you uh that scene where she's going to the tunnel and she's just smiling and looking at you happy to be on this journey together is and you as the audience by being so close and so within that um there's a there's a um there's a closeness that you haven't gotten the rest of the episodes and you do feel good about it. At least I do. Um, and I really appreciated that and all the lecturing and all the discussing, uh, it was, it was good. It was also kind of just like listening to to these people work through things was kind of a nice, I guess, change of pace. It's almost kind of a bit of a, uh, psychoanalysis, you know, by, by working through all these problems, you kind of are putting things into perspective. And so I, I appreciate it. I, I, I like this episode a lot. Um, it is very different from everything else we've seen, but I think it's kind of a nice, it's a nice change of pace from everything else. It, it's needed. Yeah, I um, I I did notice with the with the cinematography that the, well, when they're inside, everything was close, and um, but when all of the outside shots were generally from a distance, um, 
So you'd have the long shots of her running and out in the park. Uh, you'd have wild yeah. overhead shots of the car just mm-hmm. traveling and parking. Lots of oh, shots of cars. A big crane parking. shot. Our first big crane <laughs> shot of the whole series. The car parks. And she parks, <laughs> and you can tell she parks horribly because she's parking for a mark and not how normal people would park. <laughs> twice. We yeah. see her park twice from overhead. Yeah, I liked it. I, I I also like the repetitive nature of it. We go through her day by herself, and you get the loneliness she has, cause, and you don't realize how lonely she is until you hear her story later on about how that was a, hor- a tough decision for her, and she's lived with it forever. And you almost see, like, it's almost kind of like self-imposed exile from the world. Yeah. Um, you know, well, that and her sense. husband and then, died almost almost right like, almost after the war. Right after, yeah, yeah, and uh, you, you know, nineteen fifty two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His hands in his pockets, and he's super tense and pacing. You know, that had to have a real big effect on him as well. And then you repeat the same day, but now with a friend, this person, this almost daughter figure that she could have had. And you know, they have their breakfast, and she she breaks her diet to spend the you know spend the morning with her and. You know, you have her building that tea. Oh, the scene where she finally has the cup of tea. Yeah. You know, the cup of tea she couldn't drink as a child because she was rushed out of there. And then she gets to sit there and they're two very beautiful mugs that are completely different, which is also a beautiful symbol for, uh, you know, their relationship as well. It's, it's, it's a really well thought out piece. And I think if it is a little verbose in terms of how they explicitly talk about themes, even the theme of the second episode, I think at this point as an audience, it's nice. It's nice to have that moment of reflection. Um, especially if you're watching all 10 episodes in a row, uh, you, you, you need this, this break, you know, it's almost like when you build an anthology, you have, you know, serious stuff. And then there's always one comedic piece to kind of lighten up the mood before you go into whatever, you know, the final act is going to be. And it's, this is, there is some comedy, there is some strangeness getting out of their apartment complex block and getting to that weird apartment where are you here for the advert? Yeah, <laughs> which <laughs> what is the advert? Because <laughs> it's got to be pretty weird, and uh, you know, it's it's it is it's funny, it's odd. There's a there's a bit of a tension in there because obviously she's still looking for the girl that she left behind, and uh, but there's all these strange characters that exist in the world that she remembers, and it's not the same, and it's it's really it's really well done in that sense. I also feel like the, um, you know, if you operate from the position of wanting to have these types of characters interact and talk about the things that they talk about and then work backwards to develop your story, this story is really a perfect fit for that. You know, you, you it lends itself so well to people who are um, penitent and reflective and really want to, um, you know, have spent their whole lives thinking about this experience and the ability to process it with somebody who went through it is unlike any other previous, um, experience that they've had. And, you know, you know, as somebody like Sophia, who's, who spends her whole, her whole life talking about moral quandaries, um, 
for a profession to not be able to talk about her own most complex decision and the thing that probably you know shaped her the most um and have this this woman show up it, to me is is a perfect situation for that it's kind of like what you were talking about in the last episode travis with micah um sort of practicing and like working through her decision to take her daughter it, this is something that sophia has been thinking about you know did i make the right decision how did i make the right decision you know why why did i do that like what can i do to rectify it this is something she's been thinking about in her solitary existence for 35 years and so to be able to have somebody there who understands it and to have the knowledge now that she didn't send somebody uh, a, a little girl to death that she is alive um it, it, it makes sense that they would have the kind of conversations that they have. It doesn't seem like it's shoehorned in there. And it's also, you know, um, stated that she obviously saved lots of other people after that. Um, Elizabeth said, it's yeah. well known how you helped after the business with me. Well, it's kind of yeah. interesting too, because they, they've met before and they've had, you know, they have a relationship and she's, she basically says, the only reason why, like it wasn't, she didn't come to Poland to tell her that she was the little girl. Um, she only did it because the, the episode two dilemma was brought up and she said, there's nothing more important than the life of a child. Um, that bring, that brings it out of her. Um, to me that, you know, makes it more, even more complex kind of their, the evolution of the relationship. Oh, I agree. I think, uh, you know, uh, Elisabetta was coming in, not with a sense of I'm going to, I'm going to get my revenge or I'm going to get this cleared up. And, you know, she didn't come with, with, uh, ulterior motives. She came to kind of still do her work, yeah. which, she has obviously taken some sort of inspiration from Zofia's character because, you know, you don't, if you don't translate all Pretty of their intense. works, yeah. yeah, if you hate them, you know, she's obviously says, okay, well, and I, I have to assume there's some sort of abandonment feeling of, wait, she saved all these other people, but she didn't save me. There's, mm, you know, because yeah. of her moral code, which is of a religious nature and then to, you know to find out that no that's not it at all the religious nature was a was a front which you know you're bearing fault witness about that as well um is very interesting the one thing that i i, I wa when i watched it on a second viewing i still didn't get the answer i was looking for maybe you guys could help me out is the necklace that elisabetta's uh wearing and playing with all the time was that something zofia gave to her or because she mm. made mention every time I see a little girl playing with a gold necklace or a person playing with a gold necklace, I wonder if that's her. And so and because I take it that Elisabetta is not Catholic, she's Jewish to wear a gold necklace with a cross on it probably came from someone who was either trying to hide her or. I was well, just... but the cross, it's not just a cross. She has a high um, on it as well. 
Oh, I never. I didn't. I guess I didn't. I didn't catch that. I was. I yeah. It, no. It, it was interesting because in all the writing, people refer to it as just a, a necklace with a cross on it. But there is. Um, it, it's. I think it's high is how it's pronounced. But it's the. The Star um, David. It's a Hebrew. No, it's saying? a. It's a Hebrew symbol of good luck. Um, ah. And I think it. I think it means something else. I think it means like. I think the the definition of it is more. Uh, specific but it's a good luck symbol and, and jewish people will wear necklaces with that i was wondering if it was um a necklace that she had from when she was little with her parents um and mm. she added a cross um you know possibly in honor of the the uh the parents uh her her foster parents who saved her and, and brought her to america but I, I did always find I did find that very interesting that she would have, you know, both of those symbols around her neck. And yeah, it is unclear like which one was added first. Like did she rediscover the her Jewish heritage later on and incorporate it into this necklace that was a part of her experience of surviving? Um, it does seem the history of that does seem unclear. Yeah. No, for sure. Um I also think uh you know Sophia's choice uh um to uh <laughs> come on it's got to be in there somewhere uh no but uh her choice to take her to the house in which it all uh happened like we didn't even talk about the you yeah. know we talked about this house but you know she invites her to her house to have tea and then takes her to the place in which she was abandoned it was a, it's kind of a weird choice cuz you could see that she took her there so uh elisabetta could uh could come to terms with some things but you know uh it's really sophia that has to come to terms with things while she's there to kind of go and see that the past is gone nothing is the same uh you know this world has changed and then to reconnect with that concept of um feeling the need to protect this child or find this child you know that sense of uh you know a, a little girl missing almost uh, reflective of uh Ava's search for Maria um uh, or Anya in the previous episode um you have that same kind of she's searching for her lost child again in this apartment building the same a building in which she abandoned her in kind of thing so i thought that was a nice little uh therapeutic touch that helps the two of them kind of uh work through some of their past trauma the re revisiting of a location but it kind of backfires on her right i mean elizabeth is hides from her and you know then she says that she doesn't like witnesses to her humiliation which and then mm -hmm. follows it up with even buildings but that seems to me to be directed at Sophia. Um, oh yeah well i think that's the thing like it yeah it was originally there to Sophia to help elizabetta but elizabetta turns the tables on her and it helps the two of them kind of come to that realization which you know that bearing witness to humility um plays big into the the last visit they take to the tailor for sure so the tailor i i i was trying to figure out the 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 course of events the tailor is a 
is part of a couple who who Elizabeth was intended to go to after meeting with uh, Sophia and her husband. And they heard that the tailor was uh, an informant for the Gestapo, right? Yeah. Then it was. It turned out that that information was false, and they were rescued from being executed by the underground. By the underground, right? So that happened during the war. The underground was going to kill them, and then they didn't because they found out it was not part of a trial after the war. No, is that correct? Yeah. No, it seemed yeah, like. But... Yeah. Go ahead, Tim. Um. Uh. Yeah. So if it said her husband was was it a general or an uh um officer in the resistance um and they elizabeth was to go to the tailor and his wife and um they were going to um they said that if you went there then the uh, gestapo would find us and obviously a lot more people would die um he was found to be innocent and it sounded like it was not long after that like uh, the implication I got was that he'd been tortured. He and his wife yeah. had been tortured. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that and... he said, you know, he says, I don't want to talk about the war and I don't want to talk about what happened after the war or today. Yeah. Yeah. He, he doesn't want to talk about anything <laughs> besides yeah. dresses. Right. Right. Coats. Yeah. Do you Which think, do you think he was just, I mean, do you think that's a reference to the, um, you know the the political and and violent aftermath of the war in Poland, the the communist takeover, and um, the various upheavals that were experienced, or is he just referring generally to the past? I think that um, the performance that he gives is quite extraordinary. Just the the sorrow um that you see and i just i just think he got so burnt by that experience um and you know you don't know what happened to his wife either but they i just think that um he was there trying to help save this child and he ends up being tortured um and nearly executed for um, being something that he wasn't. Yeah. So I just think that's why he's a damaged man now. I think to answer to talk to your question, Matt, uh, to quote Erica Long, a little of both. Um, I think she, I think there is that sense that you know it's it's Kishlowski able to bring in the political without being overtly political at the same time. Yeah. The fact that he doesn't want to talk about anything about that situation, you know, reflects his psyche, his damaged psyche and his inability to get past this trauma. But at the same time, it is also the nation's idea of let's not address these horrific things that polls probably did to polls in the name of ferreting out the truth during the war. And let's just move forward uh, in solidarity kind of that left so many scars and problems in that uh, political society that led to so many different upheavals um, because if you think about it I mean because 
that's the other thing is, you know, they were falsely accused as well. There's another bearing false witness that we have in this. You know, if we talk about the commandment as, you know, uh, she didn't want to bear false witness, so she wouldn't uh, accept yeah. that that child is hers, uh, you know, because of that. But then to find out the real reason is the tailor who uh, was trying to hide the child with with uh, Zofia and her husband uh, was then accused of being part of uh, the Gestapo and was tortured and sentenced to execution and then in the last minute discovered that 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 wasn't true you know you've been betrayed by all these people you were trying to do the right thing and protect a child and then you were almost executed for it by your own people um, you know that's also you know they were bearing false witness upon them that they were part of the enemy and so the fact that he doesn't want to deal with it is is a is an interesting is an interesting thing that he just doesn't want to have anything to do with that at all because he's not emotionally capable of handling that anymore um which i think also reflects kind of like the polish society at that time as well like there are probably large chunks of people that just we don't talk about the war. The war yeah. was something in which we all were, you know, reduced to our worst at points, and we don't want to bring that up ever again. Yeah, that's that's kind of a little bit to what I was getting at in terms of just um, this episode feeling a lot like it's dealing with the history of Poland as much as with the history of these two people. Um, and Decalogue came out a couple years after Shoah, which made a big controversial splash in Poland because a lot of that film is um, directed at the um, supposed complicity of Polish citizens in the Holocaust and the the rich history of anti-Semitism in the country. Um, so this is a lot more than um, to use... Uh, the metaphor of the beginning of this episode, a, an exercise in philosophical discussion for, uh, the people who would view this on TV. These, these are people who a lot of them lived through what they're talking about here. And, uh, the younger ones had parents who lived through it. So, um, it seems to me like, you know, it's, it's difficult for us to even sort of conceive of, what it would be like to watch this story unfold in Poland in the eighties, uh, in comparison to, to us watching it now. Um, mm. and, and, and also, um, the, uh, the guy who plays the tailor, um, was also in, um, blind chance. He is the, um, he is the party member, the older party member, who was falsely imprisoned. Yeah, who was falsely imprisoned, yeah. So again, it feels... That, that doesn't feel like a um, coincidence to me. Um, and it uh, underscores the kind of political implications of this story as well, or at least the historical implications of it. And it's... Um, and following on from uh, what you were saying about Shoah, it was uh, also Europa Europa came out the following year. Mm. Um, and so there was obviously at that time they were looking back at their rather um, shameful history, I guess. Um, yeah, I think I think that's why the cinematography is so unique in this one. There's lots of 
there's lots of direct addressing of the characters to the camera. They're directly addressing the audience as well. These moments of smiling and acceptance and, you know, uh, a person that supposedly was of Christian faith when, you know, the the act of denial would happened. And then a person who is... Uh, you know, spending their time uh, reconnecting and finding Jewish stories and and tracing you know survivors, you know, just all all these all these moments that post war just you know, they're having they're having this sense of it's almost like there's a collective forgiveness, a collective sense of let's let's work together. Only through open dialogue can we kind of help heal these problems. And then you have the one character who refuses to have an open dialogue and you can see how miserable and how they're going to be stuck in the past uh because they can't move forward you know that idea that even his magazines are outdated and he can't he can't ever you know he'll never thrive in this world because he can't get the material he can't make something new he can't provide for the community in the way that he thinks he's going to just by ignoring the problems uh, is very telling as well. I think it's it, there's a lot going on in this that is I think if we, you know, like Matt you were saying if we were of uh of that time and of that country and of that heritage that we would have, you know, I bet this was a big episode for them that they really did enjoy and us, you know. I I can understand how it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb throughout all the other uh, very subtle and uh, subtextual uh, episodes we've had, but this one being so overtly textual, I think is something that needs to be done because it's about needing to communicate. And so by openly communicating in the episode, mm. it really does, you know, show that, Hey guys, we can fix this. Everyone should talk. If we all talk, then I think things can be worked out. Forgivenesses can be reached. Under misunderstandings can be cleared up, and everything everyone would be moving forward in a different path. And the one moment where uh, the tailor smiles is where um, Elizabeth asks him, "Are you sure you don't want to talk to me?" And he says, "Absolutely," and smiles. So that's that mm -hmm. lack of communication, but he's just trying to avoid. Well, and it's. <clears throat> he's forcing her so much into this sort of bland transaction too. It's, but, but in a sort of endearing way, like he's like, Oh, look at these old magazines. And, um, you know, he's, it, it's, it's very, um, he's not grumpy about his, uh, insistence on not talking about the past. Um, he's just not interested in doing it. Uh, which I think is for a lot of Polish people of that generation is, is a very common occurrence. I mean, they've had, they had so much, uh, so many terrible things happen to that, to that generation that it, it at a certain point you, you do just kind of have to start making dresses for people. <laughs> um, the, the other thing uh, that uh, is interesting from uh, Kieślowski's uh, previous films that is a connection here um, is that the, the story of Elizabeth is loosely based on the story of uh, Hannah Kral, which who is a, um, an author and journalist um, from Poland. She had a similar experience where she uh, avoided 
um, the Holocaust while, while her fam most of her family was killed. Uh, she co-wrote uh, Short Working Day, so that you know that uh, which is uh, you know one one of if not the most overtly political films that Kieślowski made. Um, so again, it it feels like this more than any of the previous episodes is tied directly to that Polish history. No, that's it's yeah, it's a it's a. It's a it's it's an episode that bears repeating. I think I watched this one three times just because the first time I was kind of taken aback by how different it was and I kind of didn't know how to feel about things. And then the second time I started to kind of see what was going on. And then the third time you could really kind of put it in a larger perspective for sure. Um, the one piece that always interests me, we made mention of it earlier, just the comedic aspect of the uh, flexible man. Yeah. But, you know, there's also a sense of... Uh, what what did you guys get out of that interaction besides just a, a comedic moment? What 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 kind of did you feel that there was something more going on to that exchange than what it uh, what what we kind of initially trans uh, talked about? Well, it was the it was the morning the morning after um, she had uh, spoken with Elizabeth and finally got off her chest what had happened and they'd both come to peace with it and she was happy. So she was, um, the flexible man said, uh, what was it? Anyone can do this. Um, and she was trying and bending <laughs> back. And, uh, he said, uh, what was it? Um, oh, I don't think you, I think you're too it's old. Too or late. Something to yeah. To <laughs> Never yeah, mind. Too late. <laughs> you can't start now um, or something like that. <laughs> um, and she was, you just see the joy on her face from, at that time and I think that was that was probably what I got most out of it she had that weight lifted all of the other times when she's out by herself you know she's lonely and but she just seemed to well she'd found happiness that that was what I got out of that and he was just there to I guess push it along he reminded me a lot of the jugglers in no end mm -hmm. like it's this weird thing of this useless skill that they're trying to be the best at. Um, I don't know that I have like a, uh, conclusive point about that comparison, <laughs> but it did like immediately when this guy was like bending over backwards, I was like, Oh, the, just like the jugglers. Well, he did say that there's this guy on TV and I'll yeah. prove that I'm better. Right. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that a concept of being flexible, like just you know, in terms of your thinking, in terms of your attitude, in terms of your men, uh, your your way of being. You know that I that concept of if you're flexible, you know, even even you know she bends as far as she can, and you know she can't bend as far as he does, but you know the whole. Every time we see her exercising, she's jogging and she's bending forward, and now she's bending backwards. Uh, you know, bending backwards for someone that that concept of uh, making an making an extreme effort to make something work. Um, I, I I like that idea um, for her as to bend backwards to kind of make sure that she has worked out those differences and she has and the, just the physical sim you know symbol of her making that extreme effort but laughing and getting joy out of it is uh, is like we said Tim it's just so 
wonderful to see her smile and have that experience. And she's also making a connection with a stranger in that moment, too. Mm -hmm. She's starting to become more flexible in her social interactions, uh, not as as isolated. Getting back out into the world again, because now she feels like she can be a part of it, because her that her one bad decision she made in her life, her moment of, uh, I think she has that speech where she talks about, uh, we're all born good and evil. And on that day, I definitely was not good. And, uh, you know, yeah. she feels like she realizes now that that decision has, you know, thrust her forward into helping more people as much as she possibly could, but also come to realize that the girl that she thought she abandoned put her on a trajectory to also help as many people as she can, uh, by reconnecting them with their Jewish heritage and finding, you know, family and all that stuff. That's, you know, it's such a positive outcome for that aspect. Travis, you're segueing perfectly into all of my next questions uh, sure. on this episode. And and this question is, what, what, do you, what do you guys think about that God conversation? Um, and, you know, the, the good, the idea of like the good person inside you telling you what's, what's good or bad. Um, do you feel like that is it? Re, it truly is sort of a stand-in for Kishlovsky. I mean, he's kind of said similar things in interviews, um, and I guess how much do you think that's intended to apply to all of the episodes that we have watched so far, or if it's really just Sophia um, speaking her own personal belief? I guess uh, if I was to look at it in the lens of what I've talked about, about this episode being for the Polish people and about this idea of coming to terms with things and forgiveness and kind of like working through problems, uh, not only does it feel like it's part of Kishlowski's belief, but it's almost directly saying you're not good people or bad people we're all these things and we've all made mistakes and we've all done wrong. But the important part is what we do next or what we do after or how we, how we fix it. Cause there might not be another, that concept that there might not be another life. And this is the world, which we have, which yeah. we have to make as best as we can. Um, that, that idea that, you know, if you're, directly addressing the people and saying listen we all did shit things and we feel bad but we have the we have an equal capacity to be just as good as we do to be just as evil and so we need to also think and embrace that kind of thing as well some days we're going to be evil and some days we have to be good and I, I i as much as it's his personal philosophy i think it's also kind of a shorthand for him to help people let themselves off the hook with things that they might have done that have uh, made them feel bad post-war. Yeah, I can't add anything to that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with, with all of that. I, I think the other thing that struck me about it is just that it really underscored how much Kishlowski is interested in the spiritual rather than the religious aspect of these deeper questions. And I think what I always struggle with in those situations is that there seems to be 
no way around talking about the difference between a deep spirituality and moral code and uh, without without invoking God in some way, either by accepting or rejecting the both the terminology and the philosophy behind the idea of a God, you know, that that she can't speak to her own sort of internal moral compass in any sense that doesn't invoke the idea of a God inside of all of us. Do you know what I mean? I think that aspect of it is something that I've personally struggled with in my kind of development as a uh, moral person or as working on, you know, becoming uh, what I perceive of as a moral person. Um, and so it can be frustrating to, to kind of have a conversation that is essentially just about like, how do you treat other people? Um, you know, and like you said, like, how do we make the best of what we have, um, and kind of try to make our time on this planet as, uh, enjoyable for us as it is for other people and, and, um, you know, become a better person and as who we personally see as a better person. Um, to me, that conversation doesn't need to involve God in any way. And yet it does seem to, to come up, um, in any conversation that you have about that, because you are, um, in our society and especially in Polish society, defining yourself as either, uh, in the presence of God or, um, someone who lives in the absence of God. Yeah. I think there's definitely a case to be made that this is kind of like the bow on the top of his thesis in terms of what he's attempting to do with this, uh, film cycle. Um, you know, that there is all these people that we're judging cause we've judged everyone. Uh, up into this point of this film, we've judged them on their moral moral basis, on their choices, on their decisions, um, and then for him to say, you know, there's no point in judging. Where we do bad things, we do good things. Uh, the outcome is, you know, what we make of it, and not so much of what we, uh, how we, uh, how we view these people. It's pointless to view these people in a bad or negative way because we've all done bad things. We've all done, but we have to try to do good things to kind of be a part of society and make it a better whole. So I think it's, I think it's a really, you know, as much as it's a bit didactic, this uh, episode, it's, it's an important lesson to kind of uh, have explicitly told to us. Yeah. And, um, and at the, end of the lecture um uh the assignment that sophia gives the staff is uh, the the students is to put together an account a plausible account of what the the woman's point of view was um and at the end she says and try and understand her try and get that understanding of the other person's point of view yeah i think that's very important i think that's and the that's one of the thing the other uh, like another piece that we haven't really discussed a bit is uh the fact that the in the classroom uh he she gives that assignment to the girl to try to understand her point of view 
the only male that has any sort of contribution talks about things being really violent and, and yeah, fear. you know, in fear. And then you go to the end of the episode and you have a guy who's working based off of his fear principles. And you have these two women that have come to terms with things through understanding and dialogue. Um, there's also a sense of uh, Kishlowski's viewpoint on uh, the feminine and masculine in terms of how they're dealing with these situations. Uh, the fear-based uh, situation in which you know, tends to lead to violent actions, whereas opposed to the kind of emotionally based, uh, you know, uh, talking about our feelings and talking about our things, which lead to more productive means of uh, discourse and uh, solutions, which I also I also think is very important because from here on out after this, he he basically concentrates solely on uh, female points of view in his stories um so i think this is you know it says a little bit about that in this episode as well there's also an intellectual divide between them as well like the women are um scholars and you know explore these questions on a daily basis whereas the tailor is working with his hands doing doing you know uh menial labor um and isn't you know, is is completely separating himself from the uh, from the the memories and and thoughts in his brain. All the men in these two episodes are working with their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ava's a principal, um, so once again a scholar. Um, mm. Going going back to the the fear part, um, the the man in the lecture is right um, that ends up being what the cause right. was mm-hmm. um fear of the nazis but based on the description that's given um it was the man who was unable to um sophia's husband who was unable to tell the child what it was and it was sophia that actually tells her that they couldn't um adopt her or couldn't take her to the other um parents Um, And she describes a man in a wheelchair with the back, uh, with his back to her. Right. Throughout the, so, yeah, so I'm assuming that's the person who was there telling them that they couldn't, uh, basically, who bore the false witness on the tailor. I guess in the original script, there was also supposed to be a priest involved as well. And I think that was that character. Uh, it would have been a man of the a man of God telling them not to take the girl in. Which oh no! I think the priest is the uh, person who brings the girl to them, right? Oh really? Oh okay. That's what I thought. All right. I thought but, I thought she was with the priest. Is that not right, Tim? Um, she kept referring to him as the guardian. Um, I thought they were going to meet a priest. I guess it's not that relevant. Oh, look at us. <laughs> well, the, the, the final we scene... We have a real Rashomon yeah. about this priest going on here. <laughs> um, the fi- the fi- final scene in the script, I think, was her taking her to the the priest, um, the like sort of last person uh, in, the, in the equation who's still alive to show her, to show him that she survived um oh okay but they ended with the they ended with the tailor instead it is a surprising ending just because 
the episode it's, is so focused on these two characters and we don't get to live in that moment that final moment between them we go off instead but, but, with this secondary character i i think we do live in that final moment because he's watching them through the yes. window and seeing the connection that they've made De- definitely and, yeah what I, what yeah. I what i mean is like that the um that the the camera is so intimate on these two characters throughout the episode that the to have that removal and to be seeing it from his perspective instead of you know them looking directly into the camera as they've done many times in this episode it was was uh, was surprising to me yeah and then you know Kishlowski's uh, symbolism of glass separating people he's he's added yeah. the extra layer of bars like this guy is totally removed from them like not yeah. even close to oh them. and we haven't even brought up the the opening which is uh, very unusual in this series oh, yeah. um and involves hands yeah um it's it, it it appears to be the whoever took her um to this uh, apartment complex um sort of winding their way and and to me uh, just immediately recalls episode seven um and just the idea of like you know we don't know both in terms of the fact that a child is being taken and in terms of a child feeling um lost or in some situation that's stressful or that we don't know what's going on um you know similar to the 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 child crying at the beginning of episode seven um i don't know if that if it would have struck me quite to that degree without that that lead in from episode seven but it definitely did feel like it almost felt like a dream too there's very it's very like fluid and abstract um mm. What did you guys yeah. think watching yeah. that the first time? I, I, I thought something similar because um, it looked to be the apartment complex. Yeah. Right. right. So um, whether that was um, Sophia thinking about it, mm. um, seeing this flashback, because obviously the that um, building wouldn't have been there during the war. Right. Um, yep. But she's having this um, this vision of what happened. Like this is something that's haunting her all the time. Yeah. But... Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It, it does feel like it's from her perspective. Um, and again, like with the, with, you know, the idea that uh, even a, a building you don't want to be witness to your humiliation. Um, mm-hmm. the, you know, this this series is um, fr- is framed around the building that is ostensibly watching all of these characters and their their um, interactions. And that's the other nice thing that happens within this piece is uh, uh, Zofia flat out says this building is filled with all the people and all these stories and everyone has a story. And I, I like that it's also talking about the the theme of what we're yeah. what we're witnessing as well, you know, directly addressing the um, what we're what this what this piece is about. Um, the other thing that we didn't talk about is. Uh, this is this episode is the one in which we uh, state very clearly that the watcher is of some sort of mystical or magical element because he appears in the scene. Uh, we do a camera move across the students and there's an empty desk. We do the oh. same camera move one scene later and now he's sitting there. And this is one of the few in which the watcher only appears once and 
it's almost like Zofia recognizes him and listens to him for once and does exactly what she's supposed to do, which leads to a proper happy ending. Whereas most other people have ignored the watcher or mm. heed his advice too late or heed his look too late, which caused the problems that lead to some sort of tragic kind of conclusion, with the exception of the uh the child's death in the first one in which He's just waiting there to witness it happen because there's no stopping that avoidable, unavoidable fate. But uh, it's 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 interesting because all the other ones they kind of you know usually they see him and they kind of just blow past him or they recognize that he's staring but go through with it anyway. This one it's like she sees that you know you see him directly address us the audience by looking and she looks at us the audience as well and then you know make sure she you know does the right thing which is very it's very interesting and the fact that yeah he is a magical being because he he apparates in the classroom well it's certainly the most overt appearance of him since episode one Uh, i mean you get a you get a full-on close-up of him listening to the story and looking at sophia um and and yeah i mean her Watching her during that story is uh, is a, a sort of character arc in itself. I mean, she's slowly realizing all of these situations and deciding what she's going to do about it. It's a very um, uh, interesting um, experience that makes it richer than just purely um, somebody dumping exposition on us so that we know how these two characters are, are related. Oh, her um, performance throughout that is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, just the, the, the way she shakes. Um, um, and, yeah, just the emotion that she conveys without, obviously, without words um, is, yeah, it's a real highlight of the whole series. Um, and then, of course, the drunk man walking in. But... <laughs> Right at the most crucial part of the <laughs> the story. Well, again, it's 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 elements like that that like make me feel like Hishlovsky knows the limitations of the story structure that he's incorporated and is accounting for the fact that he doesn't want this to be just a, a bunch of people sitting around talking about the plot of the movie, like you know, scream two or something. <laughs> it's very, it's very, he's very aware of the, um, cinematic elements that are needed to make this more than just, um, didactic or, mm. um, removed and, and expository. But also the man shouting in, um, English at him. <laughs> yeah. Get out. The man in the bow tie. <laughs> Well, it's, it's funny because uh, you can see that his partner is translating to him throughout the lecture. Like he keeps on whispering in his ear, like when subjects or uh, thoughts are being brought up, he kind of whispers over to him. So the fact that he's probably this uh, Polish is not his first language and then just yells <laughs> at the guy. Yeah, it's pretty good. Are there any other um, elements of this episode that you guys wanted to um, touch on? Um, I love the philatelist. Yes. He is a great character. Um, and, um, yeah, the description of uh, 
um, where she asks, uh, where she says, oh, he collects stamps. And um, Sophia says, no, it's more than that. Uh, he shows them to me the way people display their grandchildren or pictures, yeah, pictures of, their of their kids. Yeah, yeah. Is he the character that you said is foreshadowed in a future episode? Is that... It, does he appear anywhere else? I haven't finished. I've never watched the whole of the Decalogue, Tim. In case you didn't know, so I haven't seen nine and ten yet. Is does there more it, to his character somewhere else? His stamps are very important. All right, good. Yeah, because I was I was gonna say I was like, there's, it's a beautiful touch and it's a nice scene, like another person who's lonely, show you know, uh, connecting to another lonely, you know, two lonely people connecting to each other in a, in a in a different way. But uh, I was yeah. like, this seems more important than, like, I didn't know if this was one of those things that hit the cutting room floor when they, you know, narrowed it down to a one-hour episode or, because I know there's lots of that that happens within the film. He's had to just kind of remove story sections to make it fit within the time constraints. And he, he's not actually in 10, right? He dies no, before it starts. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's yeah, it's a f- uh, foreshadowing of that story. Wow. Very good. Well, um, we are we are uh, now four fifths of the way uh, through this uh, decalogue, so we will not uh, be ranking on this episode. Um, but Tim, I'm curious um, if you have uh, just thoughts on the overall series. Um, do you have a personal favorite episode uh, that comes to mind for you? And um, keeping in mind no spoilers for nine and ten for travis (laughs) (laughs) um the i mean i I look at my ratings uh, i give five of the episodes five stars so um probably um nine and i like the pervy one <laughs> that could be so that could be I, four I think, or six, Tim, depending on how pervy. I, I, you are. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think four. Um, I, I really, really like four. Um, and you know, obviously, listening to your episode made me question myself. But um, <laughs> no, I, I really uh, four, five, six, and nine uh, are all yeah. just. Just fantastic, and I love Ten. I particularly love the opening of Ten, so the the song at the start, something for you to look forward yeah, to. Yeah, well, there you nice. go, Travis. You got, got a <laughs> couple, couple good ones to look forward to next time. Tim, thank you so much for coming on uh, at this. Um, I don't even know what time. It's probably like three o'clock uh, p.m. in where you are. I, I don't know. I don't know how you guys tell time it's... down there, but. It's just hit tomorrow. <laughs> yes. So it's 12.30 in the morning. All go. right. You well, need to get to bed. Then. Yeah. You, the, thank you for, uh, for staying up. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun both to, uh, to meet you uh, over, over uh, the Skype and to, um, to record this episode with you. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah absolute pleasure. So uh, next week, our next episode rather uh we're not even close to weekly here travis um i know we are uh, <laughs> we, we need time yes, we need exactly. time to process we gotta reflect um we will be covering the last two episodes so we we do have a summit summary episode plan for everybody uh watching at home 
Um, so it will not be the, our last discussion on Decalogue, but we will be covering uh, episodes 9 and 10. So we will have uh, finished up this little um, mini-series of ours. Are you, uh, are you bittersweet, Travis? What do you, how are you feeling? Yeah, it's a it's been a it's been a fun ride. The, uh, this is the first time I'm watching the Decalogue. I was, I I bought the bought the Blu-ray set knowing that I was going to enjoy it when I did, and then we talked about doing uh, Kishlowski as the next director. So I patiently waited, and <laughs> I, I have been enjoying these films very much. So it will be a little bit bittersweet, but. I know who our next uh, guest is, so I'm excited to talk to them. And then I look forward to the summary episode where we get to talk about all 10 of these episodes as one massive theme. And that's going to be really fun to explore as well. So Yes, and we have a special special guest lined up for that um, as well. Wow. And all, all three of these episodes, uh, we're doing a, a global... We, we have a global sensation coming on, so... I get it. <laughs> lots We're of just... lots of time shifts, and I'm looking forward to getting into his final four masterpieces that you yeah. know everyone knows him for. So it's also good. It's a big. It's a it's a bittersweet sadness, but it's a nice big stepping stone into the final uh, the final home stretch. So I'm looking forward to it. Amen. And with that, we're complete for another week. 25thframemedia.com A listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.